I am Professor Vina Dubal. I am a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law. Um, and today I'm going to be talking about surveillance, um, uh, the pandemic, and digital contact tracing. Uh, I want to start by paying respects to the families of those who have been murdered and injured by state forces in the U.S. in just the last few weeks. I offer my love and condolences to the families of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Sean Menterosa, and too many others. I also stand in solidarity with the people exercising their First Amendment rights in the U.S. and protesting in the streets to bring an end to this everyday violence, both physical and structural, that African Americans disproportionately endure in the United States. And what I'm going to be talking about today, the problematics of digital contact tracing as a means to combat the coronavirus pandemic, is very much related to this broader national crisis of disparate treatment of poor black and brown communities in the US. While COVID-19 cuts its deadly swath from coast to coast, the disease follows the same patterns of inequality that we've long seen embedded in these communities where the death rate for predominantly African-American counties in the US, for example, is six times that in predominantly white counties across the US and where this crisis is heaped upon other crises which have been plaguing these communities for many generations. This is the very first global pandemic in which surveillance and big data analytics have been projected as a central solution. In the last few years, a handful of regional epidemics have been contained alongside digital technology, but not at the scale being proposed by technology companies and governments across the world right now. For example, in 2015, the government of South Korea contained an outbreak of Middle East respiratory syndrome or MERS by quarantining 17,000 people in part on the basis of seizing their mobile phone records. Um, and during the West African outbreak of Ebola, international response organizations helped set up national real-time mobile surveillance systems in the most affected countries. But the scale of the coronavirus pandemic is drastically different, as are the myriad proposed technological solutions. So in the face of criticism about the dystopic outcomes of unbridled surveillance capitalism, techno-capitalists are, as we speak, rapidly repackaging their surveillance systems as public health services. Data gathering and for-profit tracing technologies are becoming the preeminent solution to save lives and to liberate us from the confines of physical isolation. The only catch, they tell us, is that we have to trust them. Let me pause and say that I am not a public expert, health expert. I am an STS scholar and research the intersections of technology and inequality. And my comments today draw on the years of work by critical technologists and science technology studies scholars, many of them women and people of color, including Sophia Noble, Ruha Benjamin, Amy Kapazinski, Lily Irani, Aziza Ahmed, Frank Pasquale, as well as human rights activists like Amos Toe, Deborah Brown, and Petra Molnar. In the context of the coronavirus pandemic, techno-capitalists alongside some government actors are presenting us with a false binary, public health or privacy. 
But the question is not simply, should we give up our privacy to save millions of lives? This is a manufactured dichotomy that fits all too easily into the pockets of those who are heavily invested in growing surveillance powers um, of the state and of the tech companies. I would ask instead that we focus on a set of much more nuanced questions. How do we think about the pandemic and public health in relationships to their surveillance state and to surveillance capital, to policing and to violence against communities in North America and beyond? Can the quarantine be used to advance the surveillance state and surveillance capitalism? And if so, what exactly is at stake and who will be the most impacted? What kinds of legal guidelines can be put in place to minimize these impacts? We all know what the surveillance state is, but let me explain a little bit about what surveillance capitalism is. The term was coined by Shoshona Zuboff and describes the collection and commodification of our everyday data by technology companies. Instead of just selling products, big tech companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, Uber collect details of everything in our lives to attempt to predict what we will do and how we will feel and think. They use data analytics and artificial intelligence to nudge consumers into behavior that is financially rewarding for them, both to sell products and to create new ones. In turn, these new products make automated hiring and firing decisions, credit and loan decisions, offer individualized pricing, and even influence healthcare decisions and outcomes. Study after study has shown that the supposedly objective collection and use of data by for-profit has discriminatory outcomes, particularly for people of color, the poor, and women. Indeed, increasingly, the practices that emerge through data analytics and AI have an impact on the life chances of minority communities, entrenching existing inequalities instead of upsetting them. This has been the vociferous critique of social scientists and policymakers over the last five to 10 years. And over that time, those of us doing critical science and technology research, analyzing and troubling our rapid descent into surveillance capitalist dystopia, were making some progress in alerting the general public. The number of media pieces and everyday conversations troubling the indiscriminate use of data to alter outcomes had skyrocketed. In Europe, we got the wholly inadequate but still very important GDPR, and in the U.S., congressional committees had commissioned any number of hearings to better understand the intersections between data capitalism, surveillance, and discrimination. But today, in the face of this global pandemic, because many people are eager to get back to everyday life, technology companies and state authorities are softening opposition to this entire apparatus of technology surveillance and surveillance profiteering. They are both undermining existing critique and even repurposing it as a social good. A recent headline in foreign policy, for example, stated only surveillance can save us from the coronavirus. And another recent troubling example, a Customs and Border Protection Commissioner tweeted a reframing of the much criticized use of face surveillance at the border as a hygienic technology that can protect travels, travelers from contracting the coronavirus because it is hands-free. I'm gonna focus largely on one aspect of this problematic leveraging of technology capitalism to address public health and the pandemic. And my focus is almost entirely on digital contact tracing and the prospective problems for public health that this practice poses. This singular focus is informed in large part by, by time constraints here, but also because it's being sold as benign. But I would be remiss if it, I did not note that there are scary things that are happening all over the world through the use of other technologies, some of which explicitly involve state action. 
The Russian government, for example, is reportedly using face surveillance technology to catch those who may have violated quarantine orders. Various European countries have embraced the use of tech tools, including AI-powered lie detector tests and drones for migration management and population control. And in Hong Kong, incoming travelers are placed in mandatory quarantine and given tracking wristbands to track their movements to ensure compliance. Other problematic aspect, examples involve the perspective intertwining of surveillance capital and the surveillance state, a potentially even more deadly combo. For example, NSO, which is an Israeli company known for the targeted spyware that it sells to governments, has been, um, has been, which has been used to target journalists, is pitching new data anal analysis products. Um, Clearview AI, which came to global attention a few months um, ago for providing face recognition technology to law enforcement is reportedly already negotiating a partnership with state agencies to monitor infected people and individuals that they interact with. Um, the Clearview founder has also been linked to, linked to the white supremacist movement. Palantir, the US-based company that sells data software and has um, has been sort of the center of a number of scandals is reportedly collaborating with authorities to develop new monitoring tools. But let's turn to what seems less nefarious, this um, pseudonymous digital contracting. Um, first, what is contact tracing? So contact tracing is the difficult detective and trust building work um, that has been used historically to trace the web of transmissions um, transmission diseases from a person who is known to have contracted it, um, notifying those who have been exposed through good and through good relationships with individuals and communities, getting those who have been exposed to temporarily isolate themselves to stop the chain of transmission. So for example, when my um, father got the smallpox in the late 1940s, um, uh, village elders learning from, from public health authorities, um, international aid organizations uh, were able to isolate him and his family so that it didn't spread to other, um, to other parts of the village and other parts of, of his, um, his area of India. And the, um, the key thing there was that the public health authorities had used the relationships in the community so that the villagers trusted um, the people who were giving them the messaging around contact tracing, the messaging to isolate themselves, um, uh, such that they were actually able to take that advice. Um, and I'll get back to that, that point a little bit later. This method, of course, has been used for centuries around the globe to deal with epidemics. Um, and today, tech, tech companies really think that they can do it better and faster. So do no evil. Google and Apple, for example, have joined forces to create their own panoptic solution. They are leverage, leveraging their existing control over 3 billion people's operating systems and phones globally to enable third parties, including governments and private entities, to know if users have crossed paths with someone who has tested positive for the coronavirus. Um, specifically, they propose to use Bluetooth technology to attempt to track people who have the coronavirus and who they have been in contact with, notifying them and authorities of the path of transmission. And Bluetooth, um, you know, is supposedly better than GPS because you can um, you can get people who are in buildings, you can um, find them distinct distinctively, even if they're on um, separate floors. So this sounds both promising and benign, but that, of course, is the problem. 
wide-scale digital contact tracing is getting very little critique in the mainstream press, and there appears to be a general faith that Google and Apple can lead us back to, to living our everyday lives. And I should point out that for many people, including black and brown communities protesting in the streets right now, everyday life is not an acceptable place to return to. So what are the problems with digital contact tracing as it has been proposed? Well, let's first talk about its effectiveness. Digital contact tracing will only work if all people have access to Bluetooth and smartphone technology, or if most people do. And the reality is, is that most marginalized communities in the US and all over the world do not. Oxford University researchers have, protect, have projected that governments will need more than one half of the population to adopt contact tracing apps to see a really meaningful impact. Um, but an estimated 2 billion mobile phone users worldwide, and this is, this is counting, not counting people who don't have this mobile phones at all, but 2 billion mobile phone users worldwide don't even have devices that support Bluetooth-based tracing. Indeed, the idea that smartphone users are uniquely linked to their phones, that I as an individual have my own phone, which is the implicit assumption here, is really not reflective of how poor people use the technology all over the world. Oftentimes, whole extended families are linked to a single device. Some at risk of COVID-19 exposure also live in conditions that are completely incompatible with digital contact tracing altogether. This is especially true for people who are living in refugee camps or for, for workers who are not allowed to have a phone on site, like many domestic workers. Globally, there are vast disparities that could put particular communities at risk if we rely on this method. For example, only about 52% of the population in Latin America even use mobile inter internet regularly, and in sub-Saharan Africa, the number is 23%. Even here in California, home to Silicon Valley, researchers at UCSF have found that despite the importance of phones to the lives of the unhoused who need to get online to get access to social services and to sign up to be in shelters, most unhoused people who have cell phones have phones without internet access, without the necessary Bluetooth technology, and their phones are often stolen, broken, or otherwise non-functional. The safety and health of these communities, these marginalized communities is intrinsic to the safety and health of all of us. And without the kind of widespread technology and assumed technology, uh, assumed use of that technology, a reality that we don't have, the effectiveness of pouring money into digital contact tracing is really put to question. A second issue is that for many in these same disadvantaged groups, digital contact tracing also poses an actual threat to their health and safety. Now, how is that? So as Human Rights Watch um, advocates have recently argued, a weak user base could generate misleading data that undermines the public health response more broadly. For example, if you have a high rate of false negatives because many people don't have the mobile technology um, or where the app fails to warn users, even if they were exposed, this could lead to the too early relaxation of social distancing practices and other protective measures in these communities. And false positives, on the other hand, could force vulnerable populations to take drastic actions that undermine their economic security and physical safety. So in the US, every time an undocumented immigrant visits a hospital or state testing center, depending on that hospital and that state, state, state testing center and their location, they may possibly risk being picked up for deportation. Low-wage workers could lose their incomes after falling in sick. Um, 
for undocumented immigrants, um, right, the deportation. Um, false positives also could have the chilling effect on peaceful protests during a time when they are one of very few remaining avenues to hold police and elected officials accountable. Digital contact tracing also poses some very obvious and scary threats to the privacy of all of us. Google and Apple say that they are using pseudonymous data, that is data that is um, without direct personal contact information like names and emails and phone numbers, but the trails of the location information themselves can very often single out particular individuals. For example, example developers have argued that home and work locations are actually very easy to identify from data. We've also seen a lot of, you know, promising privacy preserving protocols, including from Google and Apple, but much of this is self-regulation with little oversight and no appeals process. The protocols themselves certainly don't and simply cannot address the concern that even laws can be violated where police and security forces operate with impunity. Repressive, repressive governments around the world have launched spyware attacks on activists and journalists, exploding data on their phones to suppress dissent, contact tracing apps that generate sensitive health and social networking data about these communities increase the opportunities, of course, for abusive surveillance. According to one Privacy International study, many of the low-cost smartphones used by vulnerable communities have themselves security vulnerabilities that are almost impossible to rectify, exposing their users to increased surveillance and tracking. So to date, the most sophisticated and troubling use of digital contact tracing that we've seen has emerged perhaps unsurprisingly in China. For example, an affiliate of the Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba essentially China's Amazon, has developed the Alipay health code app that authorities are requiring people to install on their phones to, at, to assess their risk and quarantine status. Once installed, the app lets users know whether they're allowed to leave their homes or use mass transit or whether their risk level has consigned them to quarantine. Um, and the app uses color codes to, um, to be shown at checkpoints are to be shown on request to state actors. Uh, the green status, of course, allows people to move freely through a city, um, whereas red and yellow demarcate people into different levels of quarantine. The platform reportedly shares data with the police, um, alerting authorities of individual quarantine status and of their movements. Uh, but as with all data sets, there are errors. Um, and some in China have had no direct exposure to anyone um, who has the virus have found themselves stuck with a red alert status that makes it impossible to go to work or for migrant workers um, uh, to return home. There's been some global resistance to these moves towards digital contact tracing um, in both the US and in Europe. Two letters have, that have received very little attention, um, one by leading cybersecurity scientists in the UK and another signed by over 300 international researchers have been sent to government officials around the world, um, underscoring the dangers and the risks of digital contact tracing. They write, quote, we note that it is vital that when we come out of the current crisis, we have not created a tool that enables data collection on the population or on targeted sections of society for surveillance, end quote. Some of the key concerns that these letters articulate um, are around potential de-anonymized information about people diagnosed with the coronavirus, as well as anyone they've come into contact with being stored in a central database and the potential ability via mission creep to turn it into a form of surveillance. 
the statements point to concerns about how in the wrong hands digital tracing could be highly detrimental to public safety. The UK letter states, quote, such invasive information can include the social graph of who someone has physically met over a period of time. With access to the social graph, a bad actor, a state, a private actor, a hacker could spy on citizens' real-world activities. We are particularly unnerved by a declaration that such a social graph is indeed aimed for by the National Health Services, end quote. So depending on its reach, digital technology may well play an important part in the immediate management of this current emergency. But once the virus has subsided, the more lasting questions remain. Unfortunately, it's all too predictable that the digital tools, tactics, and powers that we develop during this response will lead to future attempts to manipulate economics, borders, and politics. There are two paths before us. We can accept that technology capitalism will supposedly liberate us from this pandemic and the physical isolation and the economic devastation that has come with it, or we can use this moment to responsibly contain the virus while critically interrogating the totalitarian possibilities embedded in unbridled data collection. If we choose to remain critical, then we must demand massive restrictions on collection the construction of data walls, and the maintenance of existing biometric surveillance bands. We must also ensure that any data collected be used only to combat the spread of the virus and be deleted in a timely manner. Taking a different path without all the risks and inequalities and problematics embedded in technology might very well be effective and solve other, um, other problems of inequality linked to unemployment. Here I draw on the really visionary work of Amy Kapazinski and Greg Gonzalez, who argue that instead of pouring billions of dollars into government contracts for contact tracing, facial surveillance, and other forms of digital monitoring, we could invest in a community health corps in the US, a massive new jobs program, which could be funded federally and organized locally. Kapazinski and Gonzalez write, quote, it could put millions of Americans to work caring for one another and with far more sweeping goals than just turning around the skyrocketing unemployment figures we see today. It would serve our needs for a vast force that can track and trace the virus, but add to it workers who can support those in need, all while securing our health and building real solidarity among us. Such a program operating all around the country and rural and urban areas alike could help us get through this pandemic and mitigate the cataclysmic employment dislocation of the coming months and years, end quote. Effective contact tracing, especially the part that requires self-isolation, ultimately depends on the goodwill of the population. And that goodwill cannot be garnered through digital platforms. But with real human contact tracers from real government health departments, trust can be built and the process can be effective for all communities and not just some. I want to conclude by pointing out that amid protests against racism and, and police brutality in Minneapolis, um, the Minnesota Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington linked, likened police investigations of arrested prote protesters and their associates to contact tracing for COVID-19. It was actually a disturbingly apt analogy because it pointed to the very real potential that governments and technology corporations will seize on the pandemic to introduce intrusive surveillance in the guise of measures for the public health.
It's no coincidence that many of those hardest hit by the pandemic have also suffered decades of abuse and neglect at the hands of the state, whether in the US or elsewhere. Rather than embracing new forms of surveillance and surveillance capitalism, governments should prioritize proven virus containment methods, accurate testing, safe and sanitary housing, and robust low to no cost health services that can effectively and equitably mitigate the sickness, suffering, and loss of life. Even in a pandemic, and perhaps especially in a pandemic, data collection, classification, management, and use are all inherently political. No matter how much we long to return to normal, we must be wary of becoming further imprisoned by the use of our data. In both controlling the pandemic and rebuilding, rebuilding our worlds, we have to remember not to trade our physical isolation for the unbreakable cages of state surveillance and surveillance capitalism. So that's my talk for today. Um, and I look forward to any feedback that you, you might have, um, thoughts that you might have, you can send me an email. My email address is publicly available. Again, my name is Vina Duval and I'm a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings. Thank you very much.